Most of us know the famous quote from Oscar Wilde's play, Lady Windermere's Fan, even if we've never seen the play. I can resist everything except temptation. I mean, the saying is everywhere in our culture. You can buy a t-shirt or a mug or a poster with that saying on it. One has an apple on it, which calls to mind the fall. Others are a bit more risque, but uh, the fa my favorite is the poster with a giant plate of donuts on it. And I find that as I get older, that giant plate of donuts looks more and more appealing all the time than other lures of the flesh, you might say. But that captures how we usually see temptation as something individual, as something personal, private, primarily moral. Temptation in the popular imagination seldom has anything to do with other people, seldom has anything to do with the community. It always seems to have to do with me, me, me. You could sum it up in this phrase, what I do in private is my business. But that's not how temptation appears in our gospel today. Jesus is not tempted by mere personal indulgence or self-gratification. The devil doesn't say, if you're hungry, turn this stone into a donut. Jesus is tempted to fulfill his destiny as son of God without going through the cross. He is tempted to take a shortcut to lordship without enduring suffering. And these three temptations of the devil throughout history have been brutally effective. People have fallen prey time and time again to temptations of survival, spectacle, and supremacy. All of them put us under another's power. That's what happened to the people of Israel. When Israel was in the desert all those years ago, Freed from the shackles of slavery, God delivered them through the waters of the sea. That was their baptism as a nation, as a people. Yet God's triumph over the oppressor Pharaoh was quickly forgotten. The people's thoughts quickly turned to what they didn't have. Of course, ours probably would too, if we were out in the desert and didn't have any food or water. But they, they complained, if only we had died in Egypt. There we sat by the pots of meat and ate our fill of bread. You took us from there to starve us to death. They demanded that Moses and Aaron, and by extension, God, fix the problem right then, right, you know, right now. The people prefer comfortable slavery to uncomfortable freedom. As most of us might if we were in that situation. So when the devil tempts Jesus at the end of his great fast, turn these stones into bread, the temptation is not just that Jesus might meet his personal needs. The temptation has a wider, more sinister edge to it. Jesus is tempted to take on the role of every single tyrant throughout human history, controlling a populace through food to hold their survival over them. Such happened in the first century when the Roman poet Juvenal noted that the Roman populace had sold themselves for bread and circuses, food and entertainment. 
It's so easy to exploit people by making them desperate. It's also easy to exploit people by distracting them. That's at the heart of the second temptation, the temptation to spectacle. The devil takes Jesus to the holy city of Jerusalem, the center of religious power, and challenges him to let the world know once and for all that he is the Son of God. God, of course, would protect God's anointed one, and this would put the fear of God into those so-called religious leaders that Jesus would so often oppose in Matthew's Gospel. It would show them and the people who's boss. And it would also give them a good show. Give the people what they want, right? That's what the Israelites in the desert wanted. A God who would rule them in the way they wanted to be ruled. A God who would not only immediately give them everything their heart desired, hopefully also maybe provide a good show with it. Smiting enemies and the like. Both of these temptations to survival and spectacle are just run-ups to the third, the temptation to supremacy. Because this is the temptation that gets at the heart of our fallenness. Since the garden, we have wanted to be like God. There we grasp for divine knowledge and for the power that goes with it. And the desire for divine power also comes with the desire for domination. Again, this is what Israel was tempted with. After they were established in the land, they were tempted to make a great name for themselves, to build an empire dominating nearby peoples. Kings often forgot God as they desired rather than doing as they wanted to do rather than fulfilling their office. But lest we think these temptations are relegated to, to the affairs of state, the church too has failed these temptations time and time again. Regarding survival, congregations can so easily become absorbed in their own concerns. Everything can revolve around how we're going to make budget, for instance, how we're going to survive. Regarding spectacle, we might be overly concerned with how to retain folks, especially young people, or keep people coming in the door. There's a model for that. It's the classic megachurch model. Give them a show and don't ask too much of them. I even once heard a minister whom I greatly respect once say, frustrated by the declining attendance in his congregation, you know what we need? A gimmick. And then there's the temptation to supremacy, to be the best congregation out there, to strive for the best worship experience, the best programming, and the, of course, the best pastor. This is going beyond just striving for excellence, which is a good thing. This is going, this is going into, into pride. This is, to, this is about the desire for domination. So how does Jesus resist these temptations when God's people have so often failed? Jesus relies on the word of God. But this isn't a Bible-thumping kind of reliance which uses the word as a weapon. 
or as, as, a, as a tool to support one's own preconceived notions. Jesus' reliance on the Word of God keeps an important first principle in mind. And that is, before anything else, God is God. Before anything else, God is God. Not me, not you, not the ELCA, not the Synod, not the congregation, not the nation, not our principles, not our biases, not anyone else. Only God is Lord. Notice the difference between how Jesus and the devil quote Scripture. When the devil cites Scripture, he, he cites Psalm 91 out of context, which places the human being at the center. On his hands he will bear you up, surely, since you are the Son of God, after all. Not God. Jesus cites Deuteronomy three times. And all three times, Jesus interprets the word with God at the center. Not human beings. We dare not live by bread alone. Bread is important, but we also live by every word God communicates to us. We dare not try to force hand God's hand to try to gain God into doing what we want God to do. And we dare not put ourselves in God's place. God is at the center, not us. And this is a relief because we don't have to pretend to be who we're not. We can simply be who God created us to be, who God created this congregation to be, preachers who rely on God for everything we have and everything we are. This includes our identity as children of God. Psalm 139, one of my favorite psalms, tells us that God is the one who knit us together in our mother's womb. God made us. God in Christ also redeems us from sin and death by confronting those powers directly. Here in the desert, in today's story, and later on the cross. And God in the Spirit transforms us, makes us new. Lutherans don't often talk about holiness about, and being made holy, but that's exactly what this transformation is. We're made holy, set apart for the Lord and for the Lord's service, called, claimed, set as children of God. We don't have to be anything more than that. So as we are being made holy, we are given our marching orders. Keep what we do in our lives and in this congregation all about God and about God's work in Christ through the Spirit to redeem and transform the world. Keep God at the center. We're not centered around survival or spectacle or supremacy. We're under no illusions that we're going to redeem and transform the world. That's God's job. We exist as people faithful to God who experience God's transformation and who wish to share that with others. And we do that by centering ourselves around God and God's Word. Not just reading the Bible, not just 
quoting it, but centering ourselves around the word that keeps God as God and we as God's creatures. When we stay centered around the Lord and the Lord's word, we fulfill our destiny as God's holy people. Thanks be to God. Amen.